Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast today. The Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement was established in 2001 following criticism of Ireland's compliance with company law in the Working Group on Company Law and Enforcement. Since its establishment, the ODCA has transformed corporate enforcement in Ireland with a mission to encourage compliance with company law, which it does through the provision of guidance material and outreach activities aimed at educating in-house officials and other stakeholders about their obligations and rights, and by enforcement action, including some high profile. Many ACY members and Compliance Files listeners will be very familiar with the work of the regulators and enforcers such as the Central Bank of Ireland and the Data Protection Commission, but may be less familiar with the work of the ODCA. Following the review of structures and strategies to prevent, investigate and penalise economic crime and corruption report of the review group in December 2020, otherwise known as the Hamilton Report, and the publish of the consequent action plan on the 19th of April 2021, the ODCA will only grow in importance as part of the corporate law enforcement infrastructure in Ireland. So for that reason, I'm delighted to welcome as a guest, Ian Drennan, Director of Corporate Enforcement. Ian is also a member of the Medical Council of Ireland, statutory regulator of the medical profession, and was formerly Chief Executive Officer of IASA, Ireland's regulator of the audit and accountancy profession, as well as listed entities, statutory financial reporting. Ian is here to discuss with me today the role and powers of his office, the implications of the Hamilton Report and the Action Plan, and what boards should be doing to learn the lessons of the past. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Ian, and thank you for talking to us today. Hello, Cathy, and thank you for the introduction and also for the invitation to speak with you and to participate in this podcast, which we're more than happy to do. So to, to set the scene for our listeners, could you outline for our listeners your functions, powers and activities? But it was in summary, our functions and powers are codified in the Companies Act 2014, but in, in essence, they can be summarised as being a function to encourage compliance with company law, to investigate instances of suspected breaches of company law and to take appropriate action in, in response to the same, and then also to discharge certain functions relating to insolvent companies. Insofar as our power is concerned, I guess our, a brief overview would be that we have the, the principal powers that we would use would include to require the production of documents from certain parties. And documents in that context includes email, electronic documents such as uh, SMS and instant messages and so on, which have only grown in prevalence, obviously, in recent years. To require the provision of assistance and explanations, we can also make an application to the district court for a warrant. And then via our seconded guard officers, we also have the power of arrest for the purpose of questioning and charging. And I suppose then our activity that flow from the foregoing include advocacy by which we promote compliance through a range of strategies including the provision of guidance documents and outreach programs or at least we used to prior to COVID and hopefully that will resume relatively quickly. We also undertake review of liquidators reports which are statutory reports that are submitted to us in respect of insolvent companies and then obviously we conduct investigations of a civil and criminal nature depending on the underlying facts and circumstances and then we also do other work around strike off insolvent companies and so on. So that hopefully gives your listeners a, a, a brief overview of, of what we do. Thanks Ian, yes and um, our listeners generally would be used to regulators um, who also enforce but what is the distinction between the two and how does that distinction manifest in, in your office in the ODCA? 
Yeah, that the, the, there is, uh, I suppose, there can be some confusion around this. I suppose, you know, we make a distinction between regulation and enforcement, uh, albeit that the two terms tend to be used interchangeably. I suppose, in essence, the difference between the two is ge regulators generally have a role in approval, supervision, and sometimes in disciplinary matters, and they regulate the, the, the activities within certain sectors or activities. So, for example, the Medical Council, which you alluded to at the outset, sets the training standards for education of doctors. The Environmental Protection Agency obviously grants authorization in the form of licenses. IASA, as you also alluded to, conduct supervisory visits to its constituent audit firms and so on. And then in addition, most regulators, and you you touched on the central bank, will have a an enforcement role. So for example, CBI has a, an administrative sanctions uh, regime. The Legal Services Regulatory Authority discharges a, a supervisory, or sorry, disciplinary uh, function rather, vis-a-vis uh, -vis members of the legal profession. Enforcement, on the other hand, and in contrast, so for example, the ODCE in common with Angarda Shiakona, you know, we don't engage in any of that. We don't do authorization, approval, supervision. It is entirely based on response to indications of non-compliance. So in our case, we don't, for example, authorize the incorporation of a company, nor do we set the framework within which a, a company is required to, to operate. That's all set out in the Companies Act. In the same way as, for example, the revenue commissioners don't set tax rates, but they do enforce non-compliance them. So that hopefully gives a sense of, of what we see as being the distinction between the two, albeit that, as I said earlier, there is some crossover between the, the, the nature of, the, of what the two categories of entity do. Yeah, thanks, Ian. That, that is a useful summary of, of, of the distinctions. And following 20 years in operation now, what do you regard as having been the significant impacts of the office and perhaps even the achievements of, of, of the office? Well, again, as you alluded to in your introductory remarks, Cathy, the ODC was established in response to the state of affairs that prevailed at the time under which there was wholesale non-compliance with, with company law to the, to the extent that it had brought it into complete disrepute. So I suppose as a result of our activities over the last 20 years, there's a much higher level of awareness on the part of both company directors and their obligations, and equally importantly, on the part of, of members and shareholders and creditors as to what their rights are. And there's generally speaking a much higher level of compliance with company law 20 years hence. And that increased awareness has been through, I suppose, a combination of our civil and criminal enforcement matched by a significant dissuasive effect to those who might consider setting out to engage wrongdoing. So for example, in the last three or four years alone, we've successfully petitioned the High Court for the appointment of inspectors to a listed company, having successfully resisted a judicial review prior to that. We've secured criminal convictions on indictment. That is after the DPP had directed charges for offences, including fraudulent trading, theft, furnishing false information, use of a false instrument. These are all very serious criminal offences, as evidenced by the fact that they are triable on indictment. And we've also submitted other files to the DPP on which she has considered it appropriate to charge individuals with money laundering, which is also a very serious charge, obviously. And then on the insolvency side, during 2020 alone, the aggregate of restrictions and disqualifications that were imposed on individuals were 265 years and 82 years, respectively. So that's, in the case of disqualification, a total of 82 years disqualification of company directors. And those, I was about to say sanctions, but restriction disqualification do have a punitive element, but principally their function or purpose is public protection. So that is a, an illustration, I guess, of measures that have been taken to protect the public from individuals who've previously been adjudged to have behaved in a manner that was less than what one would expect. Yes, and I'm sure a very significant dissuasive impact as well and changing of behaviours out there and attitudes as well. What is the current focus of the office, Ian? And you know, what are you currently working on? What's, what's on your desk at the moment? Yeah, well, in, I mean, insofar as enforcement is, is concerned, our, our strategy is and has been for some time to deploy our available resources on 
more serious indications of wrongdoing as opposed to the you know the what we might call the low-hanging fruit as a consequence of that obviously it means that we are in you know on a day-to-day basis engaged with entities that are household names and I suppose while definition that means that we can carry out a smaller number of investigations or carry a, a smaller caseload at any given time in contrast to for example if we were to uh, focus on on low-end issues if you like the reason that we do it is that the nature of what we seek to address is a far more significant in the context of public interest and to overall public confidence in the state's capacity to tackle so-called white-collar crime so that's the that's the judgment that we have I suppose that underpins the strategy that we have chosen to adopt and then in parallel I suppose one of the other things that we're focusing on on is, you know, it's, I, I suppose it's widely anticipated that as state supports taper off in the coming weeks and months, assuming that we come out of COVID, hopefully that we do, the, you know, there is a, there is a view abroad that those supports have been masking what may well be a significant uptick in corporate insolvencies down the line. And given that we have a role in that area, that's something that we have to anticipate and try and prepare for. Because in the event that that does come to fruition, we will see a lot of additional liquidators been appointed, which in turn gives rise to a significant additional work stream to us. Turning to the Hamilton report and all the changes that are anticipated on, on foot of that, can you explain for our listeners what it was originally tasked to do and what was their originally objectives? Sure. The Hamilton Review, and I suppose it, it derives its name from the fact that it was chaired by Jim Hamilton, who was a former director of public prosecutions, was one of a number of suite of measures that was announced by government some years ago as an overall package of measures to tackle economic and white collar crime. So, for example, one of them was the establishment of the Corporate Enforcement Authority. Another was the establishment of this review. And what Hamilton was charged with, and I should say it was the group was comprised of in addition to Jim Hamilton, most of the, you know, the major players that would have a role in regulating economic crime and corruption. So, for example, ourselves and Garda Siakona, the Central Bank Revenue and so on. The Office of the DPP was represented and indeed as were certain industry representative groups and indeed academia. So that was the composition of the group. And what we were charged with doing was to review the current architecture and structures in place in Ireland for addressing and tackling economic crime and corruption, which are two very different things, although again, they tend to be used interchangeably, to review those and then to produce recommendations to government as to how the current system might be enhanced and augmented. So I suppose if I move on to some of the more key recommendations, which which your your listeners might find helpful, I suppose the first thing to say in terms of the status of it is probably very important in that the review group was set up on foot of a government decision and the resultant report has been accepted by government and indeed that in turn has given rise to a government approved implementation plan. So which all in turn emanates from a commitment in the programme for government. So this is a, that that gives you a sense of the status of of this work. So some of the more significant recommendations and and that have resulted in action points been included in the implementation plan. And I should say the implementation plan is is available on the Department of Justice website. At a macro level, I suppose, was firstly the establishment of an advisory council to advise government on issues relating to economic crime and corruption. And we, in addition to a number of the other regulatory and enforcement bodies, are, are, are a member of that. And then also one of the key responsibilities that the Advisory Council has been charged with is to develop for government consideration Ireland's first multi-annual strategy for combating economic crime and corruption. So that's going to be a very significant and important document, obviously. Another recommendation or implementation that has already been given effect to is the establishment of the Forum of of, of Senior Regulators, which is a a group comprising, as as the name suggests, of senior representatives from the various regulatory players in that area. And it's raison d'etre is to promote cooperation, information sharing and collaboration on issues of common interest, such as, for example, training. I suppose that's that's a key one that we can all, as, as regulators and enforcers, share learnings with. 
and and leverage off the learnings of others. Hopefully that gives your listeners a sense at a, at a kind of a macro level as to what Hamilton was about and what the, the key sort of macro uh, implementation points coming out of it have been. I mean, so yeah, I might just, might just draw to your members' attention that in the last week or 10 days or so, the Department of Justice has actually advertised for expressions of interest for both the chair and members of the Advisory Council. And that expression of interest document is available on the Department of Justice website and probably on their social media feed. So if any of your members are interested in taking on that role, direct them to the Department of Justice website. Great. Good. Yeah, it would be good to see some um, some compliance professional representation there. The plan includes more powers for a number of state agencies, including the ODCA. Could you just take us through the necessity for these new powers and how you see these enhanced powers being deployed in your office? Sure. When the review group and when the Hamilton group review group was doing its work, I mean, we looked at stand powers on the statute books for all of the relevant players in the regulatory enforcement area and then through you know discussion on on what people had learned and the issues that they have encountered thus far identified where those powers could be augmented with the view to rendering those entities more effective and what emanated from that certainly in our from 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 an OTC perspective were, were recommendations for the conferral of certain surveillance powers on us certain recommendations around the streamlining and updating, for want of a better term, of search warrant legislation, specifically to better reflect technological advances, because obviously some of the search warrant legislation currently on the books, you know, far predates technological advances in recent years. And then also civilian attendance at suspect interviews, which you may have seen being referred referred to in the media. It's got a fair bit of coverage. And then in terms of other entities, uh, there were other recommendations around enhanced resourcing of the Standards of Public Office Commission and the Director of Public Prosecution's Office around judicial training in, in these particular areas, given that they're specialised recommendations around the conferral of additional powers for the exchange of information between regulators and enforcement bodies, namely to make it more straightforward because the default position is information that comes into our possession is subject to very stringent confidentiality obligations, which is for a very good reason. But on occasion, one does encounter certain difficulties in trying to share information with other people in a manner that is falls within the parameters of the statute. And then there was also a recommendation for the creation of a specific competition offence of bid rigging. And where those various recommendations emanate from, as I said earlier, was principally with the view to trying to render entities such as ourselves more effective in the discharge of their functions by giving us those additional powers. So, for example, if we go back to the suspect interviews at the moment, the statutory position is that when we arrest someone for the purpose of a suspect interview, they can only be interviewed by members of Angarda Shia Connors, the conduct of the ODCE. But whereas in any investigation, we would have a number of civilians who would have been intimately involved in that investigation. And maybe, for example, accountants or digital forensics people may be far more conversant with the subject matter. So what has been proposed is that the framework could be amended such that those civilians could also attend. Now that does impact on suspects' rights and so on. So these are larger cross-cutting issues in terms of broader criminal justice legislation. And that's for to, to maybe preempt one of your questions as to why that's not in the bill. In essence, that is because by virtue of the fact that some of these issues are broader cross-cutting criminal justice issues, government has decided that it's more appropriate that they be dealt with in a piece of legislation for which the Department of Justice has carriage, namely the Police Powers Bill which is a much broader piece of legislation. And then the other areas that I've alluded to around judicial training and increased resources for SIPO and DPP is, is, is clearly a, a reflection of certain of the issues that have been identified as either being impediments to effectiveness, for example, if the DPP doesn't have sufficient resources to deal with white-collar crime files, or if there's identified scope for enhancing the, the whole criminal justice process, be that from investigation right through to trial, with a view to enhancing 
our capacity as a, as a jurisdiction as a whole to deal with these issues. Okay, back to, to your own office, back to the ODCA. What are the priorities over the next year or so for, for the office? Well, first and foremost is the bill, the company's corporate enforcement authority bill in the last week or thereabouts passed second stage of the parliamentary process, the legislative process rather in Dáil Éireann. So the next stage now will be to move into committee stage, which is where you know the opposition can table amendments and so on. It is the minister's plural, uh, by which I mean the Tánaiste and Minister Troy's intention that all going according to plan, that legislation will have been enacted by year end. So we are working very much on the basis that the Corporate Enforcement Authority will be established and up and running on 1 January, and that's very much the, the, the hope and intention. So as you appreciate, we've been doing a lot of work in the background in the last number of months, and that's continuing with the view to being ready to you know, turn the, turn the key on that on one one twenty two, And in addition to that, I suppose we are recruiting for people, new people at the moment, and, and uh, most of those competitions are closed at the moment, but we will be advertising additional positions in the near future. We're members of the advisory council, we're members of the forum, and between that and keeping, I suppose, all the day-to-day operations up and running and all the various investigations that we have, we have probably quite enough to keep us going and uh, to keep us occupied in terms of planning for the next, for the next 12 months or so. Yes, well, a, a very full entry there for you and your office, Ian, but very exciting times and, and great to see this change and hopefully it will strengthen Ireland's enforcement and regulatory infrastructure. Well, thank you, Ian, for talking to us today and giving us an insight into the work of the ODCA and its, its importance and perspectives on compliance and, and the, these important developments ahead. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the SCOI. I'm sure you find this podcast interesting and and, and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review and rate this podcast. Until the next episode, goodbye. With compliance regulations and technologies constantly changing and in an increasingly competitive environment in which regulators are putting additional pressure on firms to ensure their compliance professionals are competent, it has never been more important to ensure your knowledge, skills and competencies are up to date. A core function of the ACOI is to equip compliance professionals with the necessary expertise and skills to undertake their roles in a professional and effective manner. The ACOI's professional development initiatives are designed to help you, as a compliance professional, to excel and thrive in your career. Each month, the ACOI run a varied range of live webinars and CPD events based on the needs of our members. These practitioner-focused sessions, delivered by industry experts, examine relevant matters of interest to those working in the compliance, risk, regulation, finance sectors. After attending one of our webinars, not only will your industry knowledge be enhanced, you will also be eligible to claim CPD credits, which can be used to maintain your ACOI and or other designations. Whatever your career stage, experience or ambition, the ACOI is here to support you. To find out more on our CPD offerings and how you can register, please visit acoi.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes. 